When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We know that consumers are looking for a new wedge, and we expect that consumers know that just because we launched the wedge last week doesn't mean that we're done. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Golf Unfiltered podcast. I am your host, as always, Adam from Golf Unfiltered. You can follow me on Twitter, golf un- at GolfUnfiltered. You can send me an email, GolfUnfiltered at gmail.com. Listeners, I want to ask you a quick question before I introduce today's guest. What is the most important golf club in your golf bag? Now, many of you thinking of that question are probably thinking, well, it's my driver, maybe even my putter, perhaps a favorite iron that you're hitting. But today's discussion is hopefully going to convince you that It's actually a different type of club, and that man who's going to help us have that discussion today is Mr. John Ray of Cleveland Golf. John, how are you today? I'm doing great, Adam, and you? I'm doing fantastic, and John, I couldn't be more excited to speak with you. Uh, But before we get too deep into the conversation today, because we've got a lot of places I want to go, uh, let's let our listeners know a little bit about who John Ray is and your relationship with Cleveland Golf. Yeah, so I am the vice president of R&D here at Cleveland Golf. I have been with the company for going on 17 years now. So I started when we were a itty-bitty wedge company back when we were making quad pro drivers and quad pro irons. And I have been with us through... 14 generations of wedges now. Wow. Quite quite the experience so far with a company that I know, uh, that listeners know that I love, and certainly uh, many listeners to this show uh, definitely love Cleveland Golf. So, John, the reason that we've got you on today is to talk a little bit about wedges, and certainly Cleveland Golf is well-known, world-renowned for the work that you all do with designing the wedge. And John, the the specific reason you're on today is because there's a new book out simply called The Wedge that you helped co-author. Very much so. Um, we One of the things we really like to do here is educate golfers. And we're a big believer that the more knowledgeable the golfer is, the more likely he can get the right equipment, the more likely he can play well. And one area we don't think golfers know enough about are their wedges. So we took... 20 plus years of wedge knowledge and put it all together into a book that hopefully consumers, pros, everybody can get their hands on and maybe learn a little bit and help them play better. Well, I got to tell you, John, I, as I said earlier, I learned a ton in this, this relatively short book, actually. It's under 200 pages uh, cover to cover, but there's a lot of information packed into those two covers. And I thought I knew golf equipment, but apparently I did not because I learned quite a bit about the wedge. But, John, 
you know, specific to the idea of putting out the book, and you had mentioned that you wanted to help educate the potential consumer on wedges in general. Uh, how how long has did it take to get this book concept off the ground? I know sometimes books can take quite a while to write, uh, but how how long did it take to get this uh, the wedge published? Well, it probably took us about two years of writing, and I guess the part that's important to note is definitely it's definitely not my book as much as there's a team of us here and. We like to think of it as a, it takes an army of people to make a wedge. We've got tons of engineers, tons of designers. We've got people doing CAD. We've got thousands of golfers that are testing our product for us to make sure it's right. And we had to reach out to a really large group of people and get a large group of people invested to make this happen, and it definitely took a long time. Very good point, and I should point out uh, to John's uh, suggestion that he co-authored The Wedge uh, with Ken Van Campen as well as an, a, a long list of contributors, as well as uh, an, an individual that did a great job with the illustrations in this book. And certainly, I mean, I love a book with pictures. I'm a reader, but when you ever give me a book with pictures, John, I'm going to really enjoy it. And just the level of detail that went into all the illustrations about the different parts of the wedge. There's a little bit of history about Cleveland's involvement with designing the wedge. Everything is really top-notch in this book, so so kudos to you and your team. Well, I'm glad to hear it. We definitely, when we were writing it and when we were putting it together, we spent a lot of time trying to get that timeless look to it. So we didn't use a lot of color photos. We used a lot of hand sketches so that if you look back on it two years from now, five years from now, everything will still feel relevant. It almost reminds me of Hogan's Five Lessons, i got to be honest with you. Just the sketchy illustrations, and it definitely has that timeless look. So it's a really, uh, if a book can be attractive, John, <laughs> this book is that. So well done on that part. Um, but, John, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the uh, items that you discuss in the book. And, listeners, I should clarify that this is a pretty in-depth book for only being about 190 pages. So I don't want that to dissuade you from picking this up because you're going to get a ton of information in this. And John, one of the things that really caught me by surprise was how much detail you went into about the shape of the wedges that you guys design. Uh, And in it, you mentioned, because there are some quotes within the margins as well as within the body of the text, about how important the shape and look of a wedge is to a tour professional, as well as any golfers, actually. Uh, how important is the shape of the wedge for the potential consumer? Well, um, I guess going back a little bit and hitting it more in a broader sense, for us, there's a science behind wedges, but there's also a lot of art involved in it. And making that shape right is definitely the artistic part of wedge design. And you mentioned that it's really important to tour pros, but I'd say it's really important to every golfer out there because especially with wedge shots where it's not just a full swing most of the time it's partial swings in awkward conditions you need to have confidence and faith in that golf club and really making sure when you look down at it at a dress it inspires confidence is a hard thing to do in the abstract it's a really hard thing to do in practice so making sure we get that shape right making sure it's fine-tuned to what the golfer is expecting and what he's looking for is a big part of making a good wedge. What's really interesting in the book, John, that you illustrate quite well 
is the fact that whenever anybody walks into a golf shop or a golf store and they see something on a rack, a club on the rack that catches their eye, the first thing they do is they grab it off the rack and they hold it down to see how it sits at a dress. And I certainly do that. Listeners do that all the time. One of the things that really caught me by surprise, though, was in the book, uh, well, I prefer a square-looking wedge. But in the book, you suggest that perhaps a round leading edge on the wedge might be a little bit better. Uh, Go into that a little bit more. So um, there's uh, that spectrum from a really straight leading edge to a really round leading edge, and there's sort of pros and cons on both sides. Mm-hmm. The straighter you make that leading edge, the more it's going to look like it frames the ball on a full shot, on a square shot, the more that it's going to look like it's easy to get that leading edge underneath the ball. So for certain types of golfers, that's what's preferred. Alternatively, as you make the leading edge more round, the more you open the face up, the more it still looks like the leading edge is going to get under the ball. So really that straight leading edge is ideal for someone who plays mostly full shots, mostly square impact shots. The rounder leading edge tends to be preferred by golfers who want to get more versatility out of it and want to open their face up more. And a lot of our sort of tour reps, one of the things they tend to tell tour players, especially the younger ones who have more questions, is that you want to try to play as round a leading edge as you can stand to look at. Hmm. The rounder it gets or you're going to be able to open it up and play different shots, but once it gets too round and you can't take looking at it, you've probably gone too far. That's really interesting because, you know, not to bring up any other company's names, of course, because obviously this is an episode about Cleveland golf, but uh, more and more wedges are kind of going to a rounder shape. Is that a direct relationship to what you just mentioned? Um, to be honest, I don't know. I think it's sort of like anything else, tastes evolve over time. Mm-hmm. So if you went back five, six, seven years or so, all the wedges were getting really, really straight in the leading edge. And my guess is like sort of a pendulum on a clock. It swung a little bit too far one direction, and now it's swinging back towards rounder. Uh-huh. And depending on sort of the generation of professional golfers that come up and what they grew up playing determines what we as Cleveland Golf or other manufacturers end up making in our products. Trying to make those best players in the world happy with what they're looking at, and as they grow up and evolve and mature, we get new best players in the world who have different tastes and perspectives. You know, there's just so many little fine uh, concepts that you cover within even just the first few chapters of the book, and one of them that actually you quote as saying is the thing that we need to be most concerned about when choosing a wedge, and that's effective bounce. Now, don't want to get too philosophical here, of course, because you do go into a lot of great detail about that term. But in layman's terms, John, what is effective bounce, and why is it so important in choosing a wedge? So, fundamentally, the the term bounce has been out there for a while, and golfers are starting to become familiar with it. But what most golfers don't understand is that it's more than just the measured bounce on a wedge that dictates how the wedge is going to play. It's how how wide the sole is, how curved it is from front to back, how curved it is from heel to toe. All of those features combined with the bounce will dictate how how the wedge plays. So most of the numbers you see today on modern wedges, whether it's 8 degrees, 10 degrees, 12 degrees, 14 degrees of bounce, 
all of those are a little bit more of what we would call an effective bounce, where golfers who are used to playing something that's about 12 degrees of bounce should buy should buy our wedge that says 12 on it, mm-hmm. even though we're combining sole width and some other variables to get it to play like 12 degrees. It really doesn't actually measure 12 degrees. I see. And so it's another term that golfers and gearheads like myself might be familiar with is the concept of dynamic loft in a driver. It's, it's, not, it's not within the same ballpark, uh, effective bounce, that is. Is that what, what you're kind of saying? It has more to do with just the, the design of the club and how it actually sits at a dress. Yeah, it's, it's meant for how it's going to play and how it's going to cut through the turf. And, yeah, the, your reference to drivers is a very good one where, especially years ago, 12 years ago, when drivers started getting really big and manufacturers were putting a lot more loft on them and things like that. And golfers just, we just kept putting 10.5 on the driver, even though the actual loft might have been 12 or 13. And very much so the same thing is happening with bounce, where as we change the sole shaping in other ways, where changing the bounce to make sure it plays the same so we can keep the same type of bounce number on it. Does that speak to the importance of getting custom fit for wedges? I know that I've been guilty of going into a golf shop and just buying something off the rack and thinking, yep, this looks good. I think this is similar to what I've played before. But because there are such intricacies as effective bounce and others, uh, and even in the book you mentioned about the importance of getting custom fit, how how does Cleveland do that for the consumer? Yeah, I, I, I can't preach the importance of getting custom fit enough that even if you don't get fit into a custom grip or a custom shaft, making sure you get the right bounces on your wedges for the way you swing, for the course conditions you play, making sure you get the right loss of your wedges so you have good distance gapping, and just getting the right model where we offer so many models catered to different styles of play. Making sure you get the right model sets you up for being able to shoot lower scores. And too many golfers, I guess I'm going to lump you into that, too many golfers just go in and grab a a wedge off the rack. They might replace one wedge at a time. And instead of thinking about it as an individual wedge, you should definitely think about it as a wedge set. And you wouldn't go buy a set of irons without getting fit. You shouldn't go buy a wedge set without getting fit. You know, and listen, it's funny you mention it because listeners uh, know that I recently last year went through my first full set fitting and it, it changed my mind in, about so many things about the importance of being custom fit. And I looked back on the 20-something years that I've been playing, John, and I, I'm just so disappointed in myself for not doing it sooner. And so uh, I'm ab- absolutely a convert to, you know, needing to get custom fit. And certainly you go into a, a good amount of detail in The Wedge, uh, the book, about uh, how important Cleveland takes it and how well they do uh, with the, the the custom fitting methodologies that you all implore. Now, John, not to, to jump around too much, but something I really found interesting in the book was how in-depth you go about Cleveland's process of making a wedge. And about towards the end of the book, you talk a little bit about your release cycle mentality and the method that you follow with researching, designing, developing, and then ultimately producing a new wedge. As you know, release cycles are a very hot topic in golf equipment talk these days. Maybe can you explain a little bit 
about the the process that you all follow at Cleveland with researching not only this year's release for wedges, but the ones coming afterwards? So typically we have about a 24-month development cycle for wedges, and that development cycle is basically four broad sections. And you, you kind of hit on it earlier. The first section is the research phase, where during the research phase, we look at all of the 10, 20, 30 different technologies that we're researching in the background. We try to identify the best technologies in that that we have a chance that might be sort of cooked well enough to be ready to bring to market. So in those, we then limit that 20 or 30 down to a handful that we might put into a wedge and really spend six months focusing intently on refining and finalizing those technologies. Our next step is to move into what we call the design phase. That's where we take those technologies, apply it to the wedge, and really try to get the shaping right, the sole geometry right, things like that, so that it pulls it together into a complete product. Our third stage is the development stage. That's where now that we've got the design generally laid out, we've got to figure out how to go from making one individual wedge here at our facility to making 500,000 to a million wedges that will be spread around the globe mm -hmm. and solving all of those problems that it takes to mass produce something with so many fine details. And then finally, the last six months is just straight-up production. So to get our wedges to be in every shop we want them in, both in the United States and in hundreds of countries around the globe, it takes us nearly six months of manufacturing, assembly, shipping to get that all distributed and fill up the whole network. So whenever you go to your shop on that first day, it's sitting there waiting for you. It's really an exceptional process. And like I mentioned earlier, John, you go into some good detail about how that works. And I just... I. I was really surprised and appreciative of the transparency that you go into in the book because, you know, a lot of times companies want to kind of keep this stuff close to their chest, but you really put a lot out there. You don't give away all the company secrets, of course, but you do go out there and you say, look, this is what we do. We're going to be very honest with you. And when a wedge is released and put on the market, we're already researching and developing and maybe even testing the wedge that's going to come next. Uh, do you ever worry that that <laughs> that might confuse the consumer in some way? Or, or is that something that you kind of keep in touch with the consumer along the way? I think from my perspective, that's sort of the, I guess that it just comes along with the game, I suppose, mm. in that we know that cons consumers are looking for a new wedge, and we expect that consumers know that just because we launched the wedge last week doesn't mean that we're done. Today we're working on the next thing, and tomorrow we're working on the next thing. And because it takes so long to make a wedge, we can't wait till we finish one before we start the next one. We've got to sort of keep going and keep going, so we're always pushing that envelope. And the way it works out for me is that I'm working on a wedge today that we're releasing in a few, in a few months. I've got the wedge that's coming along next year behind that. I'm researching the wedge that's coming along behind that, and we're thinking about technologies that might come in the wedge after that. So as much as three or four years out, we're already thinking about what we're trying to put in and what we're trying to accomplish. Which uh, I think to take advantage of this and, and to make a, a point here for the listeners, you know, there's a lot of negative feedback sometimes for other companies that it seems like they're releasing and releasing and releasing, and they're kind of, I don't know, cannibalizing 
the previous equipment that was just released. And, and so that was kind of the crux of my, my question. But even anyone who pays attention to golf equipment for five minutes knows that Cleveland doesn't follow that pattern. They don't, they don't release things just to release things. I know that you guys have typically longer release cycles. Um, for those individuals that might come to you that say, hey, you know, I'm a little confused. I just saw that this was released, but I, I can even say, John, that Cleveland just released an update to their Smart Soul wedge not too long ago. Uh, you may yep. have touched on this already, but this isn't meant to confuse the consumer, but rather to hit different demographics, right? Yeah, well, one thing that I think distinguishes Cleveland Golf from many of the other wedge manufacturers, and part of why we can do it is because we have such a long history and such a sort of large place in the market, but we don't just make one wedge, sort of a one-size-fits-all blade wedge. We do have our Rotex that comes in a blade and cavity back. We have the Smart Sole wedge that, as you mentioned, we just released our latest version of it that is really a super game improvement wedge. And in a few months, a little top secret info, we'll have a more of a real middle-of-the-road cavity back wedge that's designed for that 84% of golfers who play cavity back irons mm. coming out. So we, we have a wedge that's super game improvement, a wedge that's game improvement, a wedge that's more of a blade, and they're all sort of on staggering launch cycles. So though, yeah, a new smart soul came out, that doesn't mean that our Rotex 3 isn't the right wedge for the better player. It's just a different player type and a different product for that player. Which I, I think, and that's very well said, I think that's very important what you just mentioned too, is that forgiveness is something that people usually attribute to a driver or to game improvement irons or super game improvement irons, but it's just as important, if not more so, for the wedge. And so you had mentioned a couple different classifications of wedges that Cleveland produces as well as others. Uh, such as the blades. Um, they also have, you guys have super game improvement in the case of the smart soul and then certainly cavity back that's coming out soon. How much, uh, well, actually, let me frame it this way, John. Do you feel that the consumers should pay closer attention to the forgiveness within a wedge and not just maybe play something that they see on television that the, pro the pros are playing? Um, I, I would argue that that's true for every product, not just a wedge that, you have a different swing than I have. I have a different swing than the guy sitting in the office next to me. We all need different product. And just because a tour pro is playing something on Sunday doesn't mean it's right for you. And in the case of wedges, that's just as important. Where, as I mentioned, 84%, I think is the most recent number I heard, of all golfers in the U.S. are playing cavity back irons. Cavity back irons typically have a big cavity in the back designed for forgiveness, they typically have a little bit of a wider sole to help you get through the turf. They typically have graphite shafts or lighter weight steel shafts. And right now, most of those golfers are just going out and buying a blade-style wedge, which has a narrower sole, no forgiveness properties in it, and a 130-gram steel shaft in it. So you, what you end up with is a series of irons that play one way and a series of wedges at the end of your set that play entirely different. So now it's like you're carrying two sets of golf clubs and – you don't really get any benefit of the two of them working together. Oh, you know, John, listening to you talk makes me wonder. I, I think I'm in that camp now. <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed to say I think I've got a completely different set of wedges that perform differently. So I'm going to have to take a hard look in the mirror. 
But, um, you know, John, there's, there's a lot more that we could talk about, certainly, and I, I want to be respectful of your time. But I did have a couple quick questions that I really think touch on when the consumer walks into the room, into the golf shop, rather, into their pro shop. They, they have this question about, I don't know what degree wedge I should get. Or in, your, in the case that you describe in the book, and as you recommend, the degrees for the wedges in a set of wedges. And this, of course, speaks to something you mentioned earlier, John, which was the proper gapping. Now, I know that there's no set standard recommendation for the proper gapping, but what would you say the general layman consumer who plays maybe once, twice a week should consider when they walk in looking for that purchase in the degree number on the wedge that they're about to purchase? So typically the wedges you carry, I would say, should work in line with the irons in your set. So when you're when you've bought your cavity back irons, depending on the company you bought them from and their philosophy on them, that pitching wedge might be anything from 44 degrees to 48 or 49 degrees. And based upon where your pitching wedge is, that dictates where your your gap wedge should be, which in turn gives your sand wedge, which in turn gives your lob wedge. So if you're playing a really super game improvement set, it's likely that those lofts are a little stronger, so you might have a 44-degree pitching wedge. At that point, typically a 50, 54, 58 type of three-wedge set makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you're a little more of a, not necessarily blade irons, but slightly better player irons, that pitching wedge might be 46, 47, 48 degrees, at which point the 52, 56, 60 type of three-wedge set makes a lot more sense. But I think the, the most important thing, whether you're carrying three wedges, two wedges, is just to make sure that the gapping is relatively consistent between them. Because from our research, it's something like 65% of all shots are hit from 125 yards and in. Mm. So if you don't have consistent gapping in those wedges, you're always going to find yourself hitting half shots and three-quarter shots and trying to choke up here or trying to muscle something a little bit further there. And as a result, when you're not putting your natural swing on it, you don't get your natural results. And, as, and the end game is you won't shoot as good as – you won't hit as good a shot, you won't shoot as low a score. Which is really the, the whole point of playing the game is to shoot the lower score. And so, you know, John, I, I've got a couple – Twitter questions for you before we let you go, if you're, if you're game to uh, answering those. Absolutely. All right. So now this one came in, and I already know the answer because you cover this in the book, and it's, it actually surprised me too. But uh, Alec Babble, I hope I'm saying your name right, Alec, uh, asks, can we get the straight word on if grooves actually grip the cover of the golf ball? <laughs> so... Um... It's more the the best answer is no, not really. Hmm. Um, in a perfectly clean condition, the grooves do grab it a little bit, but in reality, you're almost never hitting the, you're never hitting the ball with a wedge off a tee, off a mat where there's no no grass, no dirt, no debris, no water, nothing in the way. Really, the point in grooves is to act like treads on a car tire or something like that to channel dirt and debris out of the way so that the face of the wedge makes good contact with the ball. And the analogy I like to use is if you think about sort of 
um, Formula One racing or something like that. When the track is perfectly dry, there's no rain, there's no dirt or debris, all those tire, all those cars are out there with slick tires that have no treads on them. The same would be true for wedges. If if every shot was hit off a mat, off a tee with no dirt or debris, we wouldn't need to put wedges on it because you'd get all of that spin just from the ball face interaction. Hmm. But similar to racing, when there's when it rains out, they bring out the tires with treads on them. In golf, when you're out on the course and there is grass out there, there is dirt, there might be a little moisture. That's where we need the groove so that it gets all of that out of the way and gets the most contact between the ball and the face you can get. That was an eye-opening moment in the book for me. Um, I had always figured, yeah, I mean, you you need them. I I didn't really know why you needed grooves on the wedge, but that's that's a really interesting tidbit that uh, really actually kind of segues into the second Twitter question um, in regard to how to keep those things clean. And this one comes from our buddy uh, OITW. That's just what his, his name is on Twitter, John. I don't know what that means. But it basically asks, any tips for prolonging the life of the grooves on wedges or any tips for cleaning them without wearing down the grooves? Um, that's, in my mind, you're sort of it's an either-or. If you want to prolong the life of your wedges and the life of your grooves, then don't practice and don't clean the grooves. <laughs> but realistically, if you want to play better, you should practice more. You should clean the grooves more. And it's kind of an either-or. The one thing I would mention to people, though, is when I see a lot of golfers out there with a tee cleaning their grooves, and in my mind, we've designed this groove to be an exact shape and that exact shape is not the shape of the tip of the tee. Mm. So you should use something more refined than just a tee to get all that dirt and debris out of there so you can get all the performance out of the grooves that we designed into it rather than just whatever V happens to be on whatever tee you happen to be using. See, listeners, you just learned something new. Next time you see your playing partners cleaning their wedges with a tee, just hit it out of their hands and say John said you could do that. So, <laughs> at any rate, John, uh, extremely, extremely informative stuff. Uh, I'm sure we could talk about this for another hour, but I know you got to go. John, where can our listeners find The Wedge, uh, the book? Uh, the book's available for sale on our website. Um, just go to clevelandgolf.com, and under accessories, you'll see a little thing there for Wedge Book. But more importantly, I'd say go to your local pro and ask him, and if he doesn't have it, Make sure he gets one because those are the guys we really need because those are the guys we all turn to for the answers. We've got to make sure he's got all the latest resources on his bookshelf that he stays up to speed. Amen to that, sir. And listeners, that is Mr. John Ray of Cleveland Golf. Extremely, extremely informative, John. This was a lot of fun, and thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, and hopefully we'll talk again. <laughs>